welcome back to another episode of Finding Peaks. Excited to be here again today with our Chief Clinical Officer, Jason Friesma, and our Chief Operating Officer, Clinton Nicholson. Welcome back, fellas, Thanks to another episode. Yeah. I've been talking a lot about what episode we're on, and apparently the feedback is that I've lost count significantly. <laughs> so I'm no longer going to state what episode we're in because I actually don't know. That's Maybe fair. just assign them a title, just like episode chair, mm -hmm. episode plant. I don't know. Yeah. Chair. Nominal. Wow. Yeah. We're a work in progress. Right. Bear with us. Uh, <laughs> That's pretty clear. Yeah. <laughs> super clear. Yeah. So today super I want to, th this industry, you know, going all the way back, what, to 1938 when the big book was published yeah. and introduced, from there forward started with a strong abstinence approach to care. And this industry, at least that in the way that I'm experiencing, certainly I'm sure you guys are experiencing the same, is softening around the edges of abstinence and moving towards a, a harm reduction um, model uh, to determine outcomes. And a story comes to mind about a, a past uh, patient who was in our care several years ago. The mom continues to reach out to us on a yearly basis just um, excited and ecstatic about how well her son's doing but she talks in a way that um, isn't really engaging with the abstinence-based concepts. And I, so just introducing this story, namely the individual came into our program um, abusing heroin intravenously, uh, left our program, has since not used intravenous, uh, how do I? IV. IV. Yeah. I'm gonna, yeah. Let's go to IV there yeah. to make this yeah. more, more uh, convenient for the conversation. <laughs> Not using IV heroin, but is holding down his relationships, has a baby in his life, um, sh you know, holding down a job, uh, showing up as a family member, not stealing from mom or anything like this anymore, um, but is drinking, um, actively drinking, and she states it's not an issue that, you know, at parties or whatever the situation is, family gatherings, that He's accountable, showing up in all the ways that she sees, you know, um, positively in the adulting sense of things, um, but has removed the heroin. And so in this regard, the story is revealing a harm reduction principle, namely the major problem has gone away, but use in some way continues. And so I guess with my, what feels like a poor introduction of a story there, <laughs> utilizing that story, um, and, and coming from this large abstinence-based approach, where are you guys at on this topic? And before I ask too many questions, I'm just gonna rest it there. Okay. Jason. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is, this is a, an emerging debate, or an emerging discussion, probably, to have. Because I do think, uh, in a lot of ways, creating very rigid, success models. I've actually called it worshiping at the altar of sobriety time. Um, when somebody's perfectly sober from all substances um, and that's the only measure of success, it creates an issue where if somebody then does have some sort of slip, whether it's a beer or a joint or whatever, and it isn't a return to IV heroin use, from a pure abstinence-based model, they've relapsed and they're at zero days of sobriety, just like they were uh, the day they last had a needle in their arm. And I think that rigid model of thinking takes away any nuance and it, and it says all relapses are the same, all lapses are the same, all 
drug use is the same. And it just turns out that um, that isn't always helpful. It, it, and don't get me wrong, it has been helpful at times to think in that way. Um, and it can be helpful to take away ambiguity, and that is certainly the easiest way to take away ambiguity, is just to say all drugs are bad, any use of any drug is a relapse. It's very black and white. There's an easy way to measure success in that. Um, but I think we can be a little more nuanced, maybe, in our description of what is success. Like, is this, by all measures, this mother that you just described would say that her son has successfully uh, recovered from IV heroin use. Now, he's chosen to continue to use alcohol. I don't know how he's using it. It, it doesn't really matter. The mom is saying that he's functional. His life is going okay. Um, that would seem like a success. And I, it, it would also seem a little risky, potentially, too. Mm -hmm. Clinton, yeah. over to you. <clears throat> over to me. Wow. Right. Yeah, well. Um, I mean, I think that the big book was very much uh, sort of um, from its time, right? Like, it, it, it's a representative of its time, which was in a, a pretty conservative, um, not super sophisticated scientifically um, era. And it really rests a lot on the moral model of, um, of addiction and the belief that you know, there is an element of um, willpower and that there is a sort of uh, a, a defect within a person that makes them an addict. And because they have that defect, they're an addict across the board. Right? Like it doesn't give you any room for, um, again, like Jason said, for nuance or for differentiation or for the idea that you know, just because you are a heroin addict physiologically does not mean that you are an actual alcoholic. You know, like those are two different things. But from a moral standpoint, or that old, sort of the older models and uh, that um, abstinence-based model specifically, all substances are the same. You know, like addiction is addiction is addiction is addiction. But the reality is that addiction is really, when you talk about like the DSM-5, it's, it's about how is it negatively, your substance use negatively impacting your life, right? There has to be that component to it. Um, and this, the um, client that you were talking about, it sounds like, you know, the substance that he was using that was messing with his life and disrupting him and, and creating turmoil and chaos, that was eliminated, and now there's another substance that he's using that does not have that same effect, so therefore he would not be diagnosable under as an alcoholic. You know? So uh, for me, it, um, the abstinence-based ideology is one of oversimplicity, and I think that it lacks uh, a certain, I, I think that it really does steep itself in shame as opposed to wellness, which is what the, the more, um, harm reduction models look at. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, sorry to interrupt you. No worries. Um, but I do think, like, looking at where AA came from, right? Like, there is no predecessor to it. Absolutely, really. Like, yeah. nobody could get well, and it was this grassroots movement in sure. Ohio, if I remember right, where people started to be able to stay sober and then tried to figure out how they were staying sober. And this was, to me, just... Uh, a great, honestly, a great description of how they managed to stay sober. Um, and to your point, it's, it is in a time capsule. Um, but it probably needs to reform. Like any idea from the 30s, like we didn't look at Sigmund Freud and say all of his ideas are absolutely true and we can't change any of them. Right. 
Absolutely. Everything yeah. is about uh, the id and the ego right. and the superego, and there's no other way to conceptualize how people think. Absolutely. We've, it was foundational and important, and we do use a lot of concepts from Sigmund Freud, and he right. needed to make those, um, do that writing, uh, and then we've grown a ton from it. Well, I think actually in addiction, it's one of those fields that didn't grow, right? It found one model that worked pretty well for a lot of people. And then because there's so much stigma and misinformation around addiction, and there was this sort of moralistic component uh, that was kind of wrapped around it socially, once, once we found one decent way that helped a few people, like we just kind of stopped as um, within that field, looking for other alternatives and looking for different ways and really even exploring what is addiction? Like what is actually, what does addiction actually mean? And I think that we're still kind of playing catch up to other fields that would have like, you know, looking at like psychology as an example, you know, where they were able to sort of bust through those early ideologies and recognize very, quick, very quickly that there is more to the story. And I think that we're still pretty early on in that process, especially because the fact that we're having this conversation and harm reduction is in a lot of circles still considered pretty controversial. Well, it is weird. Even sitting here, I'm uncomfortable, if I'm going to yeah. be honest with you, because I know certainly how I've been trained and how I've operated for a fair amount of my career. It's, it's been much easier to make this a black and white issue. Absolutely. To be honest with you, like to just fall into that same pattern of thinking. But really with the addition of like MAT treatment, like using medication to help people remain sober and, and to be able to kind of regain control of their lives, like it, 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 we have to begin to learn how to explore things that are uncomfortable. Even, yeah. even acknowledge that uh, perhaps the, the lane of this abstinence-based model uh, is actually uh, maybe even a trap that we find ourselves in rather than even a, even a path forward at times, yeah. so. Absolutely. Yeah. And the way that I see it, the, the, new, the, the new language of a moral defect is the science of the physiological brain state that we call craving uh, right now. So I think, you know, I can, I can just feel the tension building on the other side of the camera as it is for us too with families being like, no, you're not telling me right now that Johnny has an IV heroin issue and he's gonna go and start drinking. I think there's an important notion here to consider that if the craving state is IV drug use and the individual, I guess one step back, I always have clients, you know, walking around, you know, our treatment center sitting, oh, I can do this on pot. Do what mm -hmm. are we talking about here? And what I hear, or the way that I translate that is that I have this thing called IV craving state and I'm just going to replace that state with pot. I mean, no wonder the abstinence culture has thrived so much because that's an error in thinking Absolutely. that it's not going to satiate the craving state, which leads back to the relapse of this craving state. And so what I think is really important here that I would certainly love for families to hear us out loud as we talk about this, and I think it's worth more of a discussion here right now, is when we think about the trade-offs, let's say we can actually do some other drug or alcohol in the future that is this over here and remove this craving state. It seems like when I think about drug use or alcohol or you know use, anything of those sorts, that there are these two words that I always use with clients in our care, responsibility and sustainability, mm -hmm. right? So when we're talking about, okay, well, I'm gonna use meth. It, 
I mean, right when it comes out of the mouth, it doesn't feel very responsible, and we know it's not sustainable. Right. Um, and our experience is due to um, the likelihood that yeah. you will begin to crave that and develop an yeah. addiction. Yeah, there are very right. few like weekend meth users. Right. Like that's just <laughs> not really a thing. You know, so, um, yeah. you know, cocaine. There's some. There's drugs out there that each time we say them, it doesn't feel like we can get into responsible and sustainable lanes. Now, with you know pot becoming legalized or at least decriminalized across the country, it's a common go-to piece, and we can get into it, but alcohol is the other one there. Both of them have components of responsibility and sustainability, at least in the general public sphere of things. Um, but what does it look like, maybe, to think about responsibility and sustainability here? Because it's not, you know, 10 bong rips throughout a day that makes this no. okay to do. Yeah. It I think you bringing up that craving state really resonated with me, Brandon. And I really think um, if somebody's using pot uh, in lieu of heroin, um, I just don't see that really working, right? Like I, I think it makes the itch worse. It doesn't scratch the itch. It worsens the itch. Um, and so I, I think there's a function of time a lot often, right? Absolutely. Like deal with the craving, walk through whatever is driving it. And then maybe down the road, um, what would it look like to reintroduce some of these marijuana back in? And, and then I frequently, in, in the new approach, which is more uncomfortable, I want to acknowledge that, it's like, well, how will you know if marijuana, if you want to do it? And how will you know if you're losing control of it? Or how will you know if it does seem to be leading you back to uh, a place where you don't want to be, into a craving state, or, or into being triggered? And so. Um, and, and I, and I, do, I don't want to detract from that, but like I do think some of our unwillingness to talk about um, harm reduction is on our field. That like this is a harder, nuanced conversation. Absolutely. It's easier to sit and tell a client, don't do drugs, they're bad, avoid all that, don't go to a bar. Really easy, very telly, very parental. Um, and in the end, shame-based, I think. Absolutely. Or maybe not shame-based, but aspects of it are shame-based, for sure. Which really complicates treatment, because a lot of actual addiction treatment is based in trying to eliminate shame. Correct. So there, there is this contradiction, that immediate intention that actually is created within that model and the treatment of that of addiction. So, um, and, but I mean, Jason's totally right. This is, as soon as you say the words, harm reduction, you have cracked open a Pandora's box of gray. Like yeah. it is just there. So it, all of a sudden, it really is based on each individual has a unique addiction there, and therefore has a unique recovery. And our job as clinicians or as medical providers or is to actually try to figure out what that is. You know? So rather than giving one answer for all of the questions, we actually have to really dig in and figure out who these people are, what their needs are, what the motivating problems and factors are, how to actually eliminate that craving state, and, and then help them to, to figure out their own path to what their future of recovery looks like. And that is, I mean, I'm tired of just thinking about it, but at the same time, that's the response, that's the most responsible way to move forward, and, my, and that's an opinion, without a doubt. And it's, that opinion in, in no way, shape, or form is promoting um, you know, substance use for people who are in early treatment, you know, or early in recovery. That's, I think, the antithesis of what we're actually trying to say. Um, 
So there is, there are edges and there are boundaries, but they are, they, they don't feel familiar and they don't feel, and they don't feel nearly as um, solid. So. Yeah, and the concept of, at least in the medical sense, of um, neuroplasticity, brain neuropl neuroplasticity is of the brain, of course, but in, in, without diving too deep into the science, I mean, the basic premise of it is, right, that n new neural pathways can form, and I think that's Absolutely. the brilliance of the time component, that if you have this craving state, the more distance you have from it and the more neural pathways that are developed in front of it, um, or on the other side of it, you have what seems like a new opportunity to explore different things in a way that was limiting in this case. Absolutely. So I think, absolutely, even though we're in a gray area, time is really important and distance from the original craving state is absolutely needed um, in this regard, uh, or in that regard in uh, particular. So, um, and, and just real fast, I mean, that, that reiterates the, the idea that recovery is not just sobriety. Like those are two very different mm -hmm. things. Like not using substances is not the same as recovery. Uh, recovery is about changing all of those aspects of your life, the, the social aspects, the interpersonal aspects, the intrapersonal aspects, um, managing and, and creating a life that, in which you function completely differently, which is reflected in the new, and the way that your brain is functioning, right? It, because of neuroplasticity, that transformation is somehow made permanent and more meaningful and you actually do live a different life. Yeah. I think that's a great point. I mean, I, I, I do think of people that I've met along the way who maybe have been sober for years and years and years and go to three AA meetings a day and are no more pleasant to be around when, than when they were drinking. Yeah. They're sober, but they're not in any sort of recovery. Yeah. 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 It's a thing. Yeah, and, and so it, it brings me to a future topic, medication-assisted treatment programming that um, we'll definitely play out in a future uh, episode. But one of the things that Dr. Volkow with NIDA, the National Institute on uh, Drug Abuse, came out many years ago in regards to Suboxone, this is around, I think, 2006 or so, and felt as if this was a cure to craving states. So there's tension on the mat side of things that I'm looking forward to talking to, but just kind of leave the viewers with as a tail end of this conversation um, that's limiting in our thought about this, that we can apply an, a drug objectively to all subjective craving states for intravenous opioid users in, in, in relationship to Suboxone that for me doesn't seem reasonable, that it can't be the silver bullet that we depend on as an industry moving forward. It's something within the toolkit that we can utilize um, in all of this, but I don't feel like Suboxone in general or you know, Sublocate and the like are accounting for the subjective experience of craving states. And this is why we get such a separation from the young adult being entirely not successful on MAT programming, where you get you know, middle age, 33 years old or higher, largely seemingly becoming successful on those protocols. So. Um, I don't know exactly what my question is here, but I feel... <laughs> it seemed like you were doing an outro. Yeah, maybe it's an outro here. Right. Um, well, you're kind of reiterating the idea that, um, you know, silver bullet responses, regardless of what they are, whether they're based in a medication model or whether they're based in an abstinence model, there is no silver bullet. The real, the real work and the real repair is done over time, and it's... Uh, actually done within the brain. You know, that's where the majority of the repair work is. And it mm -hmm. takes time, it takes dedication, it takes treatment, it takes uh, counseling, it takes um, 
uh, several different dynamics and variable, variables are involved in actually healing the brain. So um, the silver bullet mentality in general, and I think this goes for either um, abstinence-based or for um, harm reduction models, is I think that's maybe what we actually need to walk away from. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's crazy because inside of me, as we talk about this, I, I want to like put the disclaimer out there that like people don't walk out of peaks with the recommendation of like and start smoking yeah, marijuana, yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, explore your path. Absolutely or, not. Uh, have your wife pick you up with a six pack and see how it goes like that. It, because of that time element, people aren't walking out after a stabilization program right. and right into that. Like there's, a, there's that element, see? And that's my own right. discomfort with this whole conversation, but I feel like I need to say it. Yeah, yeah. and it, it is a part of this outro, outro that, I, that you rightfully it's pointed out. I'm cautioning both sides of the, the, the polar Absolutely. sides of the conversation that this isn't pure harm reduction, this isn't pure abstinence, that we have to sort of live in this gray area to arrive at better outcomes for the individual, for the family systems that are suffering throughout this process. And so um, hopefully we've been able to provide a little bit of insights into um, the tension in this relationship. You can probably experience it in just us discussing out loud that there is tension in this um, uh, topic and that definitely the goal isn't to just you know, turn around and start using you know, drugs and alcohol by uh, any means not. in this regard. It's, it's sensitive, but it's something worth talking about, and this industry does need to talk about it. And I'm excited that uh, we're able to deliver small pieces of it today. So thanks again for joining us here at uh, the Finding Peaks, and we look forward to uh, the next episode with you all. Thank you. Thanks. Ciao.